Well, we're going to continue our series through Esther. So if you have a Bible, open up. If you open up to the middle, you've got Psalms and Proverbs. You keep going left, and you'll hit a book called Job. Call him Job. And we're going to be in Esther chapter 8. Esther is right next to Job. We're going to continue our series by looking at Esther chapter 8. If you're new to our church, what we do is preach through sections of the Bible, whether convenient or not, whether PG-13 or R or whatever, we preach the sections as they come to find out God's word for us. Today we're going to be in Esther chapter 8. Now in ancient times, one of the most frightening places you could be was lost at night in the forest. In the forest, you have no idea what manner of threat prowls within. There could be bandits, there could be crazed animals, and all of it was shrouded in darkness, and it was the stuff of ancient nightmares. So the saying, we are not out of the woods yet, originated in ancient Rome, meaning there's some trouble we have passed through thus far, but we still face a dangerous threat. We're not out of the woods yet. As the curtain goes up on Esther chapter 8, Haman, he remains hanging on the gallows. The great enemy of the Jews is dead. Esther's plan has worked to perfection. The king was enraged and hastily sent Haman off to his execution. But we are not out of the woods yet. The decree to annihilate all the Jews throughout the whole Persian Empire is still in force. It was coming. It was about seven months away. Esther knew that though Haman was dead, the threat to the Jews remained very much alive. And so she had to convince the king yet again. She has to go again into his presence uninvited. She has to again take her, her life in her hands. And if there's a word to describe Esther 8, it would be this, transformation. In chapter 6 and 7, we saw reversal We saw rescue by reversal, and now we're going to see the fruits of that reversal in a word, transformation. But first, we've got to get out of the woods. We're going to see in three movements this morning, rewards, requests, and revocation. First, rewards. Say what you want about Xerxes, but this guy knows how to dole out the rewards. In chapter 6, he belatedly honored Mordecai, for foiling an assassination attempt many years earlier. And now, again, he shows his generosity with Haman's estate. Look at verse 1. On the day that King Ahasuerus, which is this, that's just the Hebrew way of saying Xerxes, gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had given to Haman, which he had taken from Haman, which he gave to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now, typically, when typically estates were confiscated by the king or the government when there was treasonous activity. But remember, Haman worked within the legal system and got the king's approval to exterminate all the Jews, and yet, even in death, he's, he's treated as an enemy of the state. Another irony. 
another irony, but also the beginning of a transformation. The enemy of the Jews is dead, and his property is given over to a Jewish queen. Not only that, but Mordecai, his sworn enemy, now takes his place as prime minister over all of Persia. What a difference two days can make. Esther hid her Jewishness for years. And the day she reveals her true identity, Haman, the hater of the Jews, is executed and her Jewish uncle is promoted. Ironic. The king's actions are good, but they're insufficient. Why? Because he's only thinking on a personal level. He gives to Esther the property of Haman, but he fails to realize that the edict of Jewish destruction still hangs over all the people who are Jewish in Persia. Persia. He gives the property to Esther, and he has no thought of all the Jews throughout all of his 127 provinces. And Esther, Esther realizes this reward is not enough. So again, she has to take her life into her hands and approach the king unannounced. The rewards she received are insufficient. And so we move now to the request. Verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. This is a very different appearance before the king than we saw in Esther chapter 5. Before, she was calm, she was cool, she was collected. She asked the king to a banquet. She was withheld her original request until the second bang banquet. This time, she's messy crying and pleading with the king before he even holds out his golden scepter, inviting her to draw near. She, she approaches the king and collects herself enough to make the following request. Verse 5. And she says, if it please the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his eyes, you, you can almost hear she's crying here, right? You know when you have a good cry and you can barely breathe, and you're like, <gasps> right? And you repeat yourself a lot? That's exactly what's happening here. If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes... She's really crying. She's really pleading. She is not as organized. And she says this, verse 5, Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I hear, I'm sorry, how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? kindred? So, this is, she's, again, we've noticed throughout this story that Esther gets politic, more and more politically savvy. She suggests calling the original decree of Haman. There is, the decree's already gone out, 
and Haman can't, or Xerxes can't call it back. And remember, the ridiculous Persian law that said, once a law was on the books, it could not be repealed. So how is Xerxes going to respond? Verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict in the name of the king was sealed in the king's ring cannot be revoked. You see what he says? He's like, all right. I gave you Haman's house. I gave you Haman's stuff. You have his flat screen TV. You have his Xbox. You have, every, you have his cars. You have everything he had. It's yours now. Essentially, he's like, why do you even care? Why are you worried about the Jews? You should be happy with what I've gotten. And so instead, he's like, notice what he says in verse 8. You may write what you please with regard to the Jews. He has no suggestions. Remember, this is not a king who thinks for himself. He has no suggestions. He's basically saying, listen, I killed Haman for you and gave, him all, he all, gave you all his stuff because he wanted to kill you. He wanted to kill all the Jews. Now, you want more? Persian laws can't be repealed. They can't be annulled. They can't be written back. So I have no idea what you're going to do, but go for it. I can't figure it out. Here's my ring. Speak in my name and do what you will. So this is a gentleman who has no backbone. Do you see that? See, here's, he, he's just taking the easy way out. He just says, I have no suggestions. I can't think for myself. I don't know what to recommend. But I can say, here's my ring. Write whatever you want in my name to the Jews. Good luck. God bless. Xerxes is a gutless wonder. So what do they do? Well, Mordecai goes into action. We've seen the reward, and then the request, and now the revocation. Verse 9, the king's scribes were summoned at the time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written, according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. So we're two months and ten days removed from Haman's original decree. Now you'll notice if you go back and read the decree that Haman wrote, Mordecai adopts much of the same language from the original. He reverses it, but he reverses the direction. Now what is Haman going to write, or what is Mordecai going to write to all 127 provinces. He's got, he's had two months to think of a plan. He has, he's had two months to figure out if he were made king of the world, which he has been made king of the world, what he would write up. And you're going to think, here comes a good plan, here comes something that is going to save the day, here comes something that's going to make all the difference for all the Jews of the 127 provinces. And so here is how we read what Mordecai writes in the name of King Ahasuerus, verse 10. And he, that's Mordecai, wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from royal stud, 
saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. And on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is in the month of Adar. So what's his plan? Fight back. Now, do you think they would have fought back without being told to fight back? Yes. Is this a good plan? No. Could we think of a better plan if we had two months? Probably. Did Mordecai think of a better plan? No. See, this is more than just stand up to the bullies in the playground talk that dads talk to their kids. Mordecai uses the same dramatic language that Haman did. Notice those three verbs, destroy, kill, annihilate. He tells the Jews, destroy, kill, annihilate any armed forces. See, there's indication that in, in throughout Persia, they were gathering together in militia groups to attack Jewish people and plunder their goods and property. The reason Haman gave the empire 10 months to prepare is so that they could muster militia. And so Mordecai writes, when they come at you, kill, steal, or destroy, kill, and annihilate them. Now we have to ask, how is this going to go? We have two decrees that have been written by two different prime ministers, both in the name of the king. Both calling one party in the nation to fight another. This is civil war. This is civil war instituted by law. And where's King Ahasuerus? Is he like President Lincoln? Nope. He's not even like Nero playing the fiddle. He's not even in the picture. He's not here. He's not doing anything. He's... He's, he's totally absent as civil war come, is planning to come at the, end of the, at the end of the year. They have seven months to prepare for civil war. But one of the things that we should note and get our attention is that both decrees called to destroy, kill, and annihilate Jews, but also aimed at women and children as well. Now, if you read the biblical commentators on Esther chapter 8, some of them will do all kinds of gymnastics and somersaults to tell us that Mordecai did not really mean they should kill women and children, but that's what he said. So what are we to think? In the ancient Near East, way, in the ancient Near East way of thinking where these people lived and lived their whole lives and died, when you conquer and destroy entire, you, when you conquer and destroy, you destroy entire families so that the sons do not grow up embittered, and you don't have to fight the same wars over and over and over again. So it was typical in a conquering army to go in and destroy everything. But that doesn't entirely solve the moral dilemma. You might ask, what about the time? What about the times when the Lord determines to exterminate the Canaanites who lived in the promised land that the nation of Israel came to occupy? Something about that's very different. First, God waited centuries to exact judgment. This was not random, haphazard destruction. And the seven nations of Canaan 
had 600 years to mend their ways and to repent, and they did nothing. And so when the nation of Israel came to conquer, they were the, just, they were the arm of justice for God. Now, the followers of God do not function that way, this way now at all. And it should make us scratch our heads to ask, now why did Mordecai direct the people of God, the Jewish people, to attack both women and children? Now, when we read next week, we're gonna, or the week after, we're going to find that they don't attack the women and children and they don't take plunder. But we must recognize that God's justice is always merciful. He rushes to nothing. And it's ambiguous as to whether or not Mordecai did the right thing here. It's not ambiguous in regards to the Canaanites back in, Genesis, or back in Exodus when the people were marching toward Canaan and Joshua led them into the, country, into, into the nation in Joshua, at the beginning of Joshua in the whole book. So we have this now written. This decree is now written, verse 13. A copy was written, was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, And the Jews were ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. So Mordecai gets the fastest form of communication, which is fast horses, and he sends the decree to every corner of the Medo-Persian Empire. And Mordecai begins the process of completely transforming the empire. Now, what would the effect of this new decree be? The beginning of transformation. Now, you'll remember, if you were with us, the Jews, when they heard of the prior decree from Haman, we read that they mourned, they wept, they lamented, and they fasted. Now, verse 16. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Light and gladness and joy and honor. It's not just a reversal, but a transformation. And the transformation intensifies in verse 17. And in every province and in every city, 127 provinces, bunch of bunch of cities, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now that is a transformation. Not only do the Jews of the empire have no reason to be afraid, they have light and gladness and feast together. They declare a holiday. Many of the Gentiles decide, hey, I'm Jewish, because they were afraid. Consider the transformation. At the book's opening, Esther conceals her true ethnicity for her own safety, but by the end of chapter 8, Persian Gentiles declare themselves Jewish for their own safety. That is a transformation. That is unexpected. Now, what's missing? Joy? No, that's there. 
Gladness? Nope, that's there. Celebration? Nope, that's there. Relief? Nope, that's there. What's missing? Gratefulness to God. That is nowhere. The people of God should be singing songs of gratefulness. They were rescued by the hand of God Most High like they were when they were slaves in Egypt. When Moses led the people through the Red Sea, he did not just come out the other side and go, Woo, this is great, let's have a feast. He stopped and led the people of God in singing thankfulness, songs of thankfulness to the Lord. And he led the people in singing. Look at what Moses did. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Here it is in part. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has been thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Verse 7, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. But it didn't happen. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You led your steadfast love, you led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to the holy abode. Mordecai sings nothing like that. He should sing something like, I will sing to the Lord who triumphed gloriously. The great enemy of the Jews is dead. The threat to the Jews is gone. The Lord who is my strength and my song, He has become our salvation. This is the God that we should praise. This is the God who looked out for us. This is the God who protected us. This is the God who saved us, not by our own cunning, not by our own plan, but by His mighty right hand, and that is not there. Instead, Mordecai puts on royal robes of blue and white. He fit, gets fitted for a golden crown, and he puts a robe of purple, fine linen and purple on him. So instead of going to God and expressing gratefulness, he goes to the presence of the king and prays. He doesn't even do the old wide receiver tip of the hat to God, right? You ever watch a football game? And afterwards, the receiver who scored the big touchdown just says, I just first of all want to thank God I couldn't do any of that without him. And then he goes on to describe how good his catch was. Mordecai doesn't even do that. He doesn't even say, I just want to give all glory to God. He doesn't do that. He puts on the robes. He puts on the crown. And he's like, I'm the man. That's what Mordecai does. See, it's as if he's communicating to Susa and the Persians, I'm the rescuer. I wrote the decree. Look at me. I've got a crown on my head. I've got robes on my shoulders. 
It was a transformation, for sure, and it was good. The people of God were not going to be killed by the Persians. But this empire-wide transformation only went so deep. They experienced a transformation of circumstance, but not of heart. Their circumstances changed, but their hearts were untouched. It was an important and it was a significant transformation. And it was good news, it was great news that the people of God would not be killed. But the transformation did not go deep enough. The transformation must, should have gone deep enough to where they said, Our God has rescued us. Let us put our faces in the ground and thank our God. Because He has seen fit, even when we did not call out to Him, even when we did not hear His voice, even when we did not praise Him, even when we did not consult Him, He has saved us. But they did not do that. See, as Christians, we know a thing or two about transformation. And we know that it's not enough for our circumstances to shift and be transformed. We know that our hearts must be transformed too. And that's something if you're not following Jesus. Maybe if you've drifted away for a while. You need to recognize something about Christians. We're not smarter than you. We're not better than you. We just know a Savior and His name is Jesus. You cannot transform your life by yourself. You must, you must look to Jesus. And here's the idea. Jesus offers a greater more lasting transformation. We don't just need our circumstances to change. We need our eternities to change. We don't just need a thing or two about our lives to change. We need everything about us to change. And that is only something that Jesus can do. We don't just need to be a little bit improved. We need to be transformed so that we are completely different. And that's not the transformation that happened in Esther chapter 8. But as Christians, that is the transformation that we can enjoy and celebrate now. So what can we take away? Two thoughts as we close. First, political victories are always only temporary. Christ's victories are eternal. Political victories are always only temporary. Christ's victories are eternal. Now, knowing what we know of politics in ancient Persia, and if you've been with us, you know more than most of the people on the planet, should Mordecai feel secure in his new position? Should he be wearing the blue and purple, and the blue and, or the purple and blue, and then the purple and robe, and I'm not, I haven't seen it, so like all the fancy stuff, should he be wearing that thinking, I'm at the top of the world and no one can touch me? No. Because 48 hours before that, Haman was on the top of the world wearing those same robes. And now, he was on top of the gallows, rotting. I think it's easy for us as Christians to be too easily pleased with political victories. I'm not saying that political victories have no value. They are. 
And it was good that the Jews of Persia were not exterminated. I'm not saying that political victories are nothing, but they are not everything. They are not lasting because they're only temporary. In ancient Persia, the victories were temporary because Xerxes is fickle. He's fickle. Do what you want. The next day, he's going to tell someone else, (coughs) do what you want. Who knows who has the signet ring tomorrow? Do what you want. That's the way he's going to be. American public opinion is just as, and even more fickle. A political victory won with a fickle populace is only temporary. Jesus has won a greater victory for us to enjoy. He has won the victories all that, for, that are ours all by himself without help from us in any way. And the kind of victories that he has won are not the kind that can be impacted by fickle public opinion. We must remember and rehearse the permanent victories that are ours now in Christ every day. An example is what David does in Psalm 103. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. When he says, Bless the Lord, he's saying, Thank God for what God has done for me. And he's speaking to himself. He says, soul and everything else that's in there, you need to remember and bless and thank the Lord for what he's done. There are innumerable benefits that are now mine because God has given to me, given them to me in Christ. The victories we have in Christ are things that we need to remind ourselves on a daily basis. We need to give voice to those victories. We need to give thanks for those victories. We need to talk to ourselves and say, Soul, bless the Lord. We need to forcibly remind ourselves of the permanent victories that are ours in Christ right now. Dr. Lloyd-Jones once said, Have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Yes. He recommends instead saying, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. And you read Psalm 103, and David speaks to himself of the victories won. He reminds himself that the Lord has forgiven our iniquities. Every single one. The ones you committed past, present, future. He forgives our many sins. We read that he is the one who redeems our life from the pit. We didn't climb up out of our pits. We were in the pit, stuck and dead. Some of you were in the pits of drugs or alcohol, greed or laziness, selfishness, pornography, debauchery of all kinds, envy, a desire to control, self-sufficiency. He reached down to those trapped in the pit of that kind of despair and pulled them up. If you are a Christian, If you trust Jesus, he has pulled you up out of that pit. You did not climb up out of that pit on your own. Then he crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. He doesn't just say, hey, listen, here's steadfast love and mercy. Here's the image. He gives us the crown, meaning that we are rewarded with his steadfast and unending love and forever mercy. We're rewarded not because we did anything, but we're rewarded because Christ has done all for us. We're rewarded with the steadfast love and mercy that we did not deserve because of the victory that we did not win. And he does not deal with this according to our sins. This is another victory that is ours in Christ. Friends, when difficulty clamps down on your soul, you might think, 
I deserve that. I deserve payback. Now, I'm not talking about consequences for sin. There are consequences for sin, absolutely. But let's say you lived a crazy, wild life as a young person. You become a Christian. Let's say you suffer later with a miscarriage or cancer or a wayward child, and you think, that's what I get for being wild as a kid. Let's say you married your wife and, or your husband, and you carried on in a way that was ungodly before you got saved, and it was sinful, and you lose your job, or you have discouragement or different setbacks in your life, and you think, that's what I deserve. No, that is not the way the Lord works. He does not do that. He doesn't go, you're enough of trouble. You were big time trouble 12 years ago. Now I'm going to bring trouble on your head. No, why? He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not repay us for sinning. Now there are consequences for sin to be sure, but he doesn't punish us because of the sins that we've committed in the past. That punishment has been heaped upon Jesus Christ. Friends, that's a victory for us. That's a victory that cannot be taken away. And these are the kind of victories that we cannot lose and must be reminded of. Mordecai did not lead the people in thankful praise. But because we've been transformed, we know the victories that are ours in Christ we can never lose. And may we continually give thanks to the Lord who has given us these victories. Political victories, they are only temporary. Christ's victories are eternal. And secondly, we as Christians, speaking to Christians, have experienced a greater transformation and await an even greater transformation than the people of Persia. We, as Christians, have experienced a greater transformation and we await an even greater transformation than the people of Persia. The Gentiles of Persia decided they wanted to be Jews because it was popular and safer for their lives and livelihoods. And that's a good transformation. But we have experienced something much better. If you're a Christian... It's not just that you, be, you believe a new set of beliefs, but you, you do, but something else has happened to you. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. This is what you already are. The old friend has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are a new, transformed creation. Now, if you're here and you follow Jesus, you think, I don't feel that way. I don't feel very transformed. I feel like kind of a mess. Well, I'll give you proof that you're a new creation. If you care about pleasing the Lord, that is the work of the Spirit and the beginning of a transformation process. Before you were saved, you had no desire to please God. You had a no impulse to kill sin. If you had a desire to grow, if you have a desire to grow in any, in any amount, that's an evidence that the Spirit of God is in you and you are a new creation. 
you might think, I just don't feel transformed. I still struggle against sin. I still fail. I still make stupid mistakes. I have to fight so hard. I don't want to pray as much as I should want. I should want to read the Bible more than I do. I don't want to please God as much as I should want. Friends, the fact that those things bother you is an evidence of your transformation. And we all, 2 Corinthians says, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. What same image? What same image? The image of the glory of the Lord. What's the image of the glory of the Lord? Jesus Christ. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We're being transformed, friends, from one image, from one glory to another. And one day, we will see Jesus and we will be like him. And the days of darkness and the days of despair and the days of fighting sin will be forever over. And our transformation will be complete. And the transformation will be greater than just the Persians waking up and saying, you know what, I better be a Jew for my own safety. The transformation will be completely and totally different. It will be us forever with our Savior, being with Him, being like Him, knowing Him. And that transformation process is what lies in the future. But now, now, we are being transformed as we continually behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we can say with Newton, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And friends, if you follow Jesus, you are transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit the blood of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would help all of us here in this place. Lord, a lot of us as Christians walk in and we think that we don't measure up, that we're unworthy. We think we don't have enough faith. We think that there's all kinds of things wrong with us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to get our eyes off our own shortcomings and failings and failures and flaws and point ourselves to you instead, Jesus, who has overcome everything, even our sin. You've took upon yourself our sin. You have died and you have defeated the specter of death. You have walked out of the tomb to an everlasting, never, never-ending life. And Lord, because of that, we can now, as Christians, know that we are transformed. We are new creations. One day we will be like you, Jesus. In these days, we are changed from one degree of glory to another. We're changed day by day more and more to be like you. And I pray that you would give strength and courage to those in this room who have forgotten some of the victories that, Jesus, you have won for us. 
I pray that you would help us to remember that you do not repay us according to our sins. I pray that you would help us remember that you have crowned us with your steadfast love. It's our reward because Christ is our Savior. I pray that you would remind us that the punishment for our sins is put away as far as the east is from the west. I pray that you would remind us that we are new creations, not by dent of our own ability, but by the strength and might of our Savior. Thank you for that transformation process that we could never do on our own. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that continually pour out gratefulness to you. I pray that we would be a people who continually communicate our thankfulness to you. May we not be silent as the people of God were in Esther 8. May we proclaim our gratefulness, our thankfulness. May we communicate how much we love you and how amazing it is to us that you love us. And Lord, I pray that you would continually transform us. I ask for people who are in this room who are more aware, for those that are Christians that are more aware of a sin they're fighting against than the Jesus who has defeated sin. I pray that you would encourage them and build them up. I pray that you would lead them to a mature friend who can rehearse to them the victories won in Christ. Jesus, thank you for that hope. Thank you for that reality. Thank you for the transformation wrought in us by your power. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.